0: Good morning. It's good to see you. Uh, glad you're with us. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors. Uh, glad you're with us on a somewhat rainy Sunday morning. Uh, however, you come into this place, we are continuing as we have been this whole summer in First John. Uh, this series that we've titled "Light and Love" and. Uh, First John uh, has been a, an important book for me personally since becoming a Christian early in high school. Uh, God has always used this book to speak to me and to assure me of his love and of his grace. And, and so I'm glad we've been able to spend time in it together this summer. Uh, as a reminder, I've started this series by saying that the primary purpose of John writing this letter, this epistle, was to encourage and comfort Christians, to give assurance and confidence and security in God's love to Christians And some of the things that we've looked at that John is proclaiming that Christians should hold in their minds and their hearts are this. Here's the first, that John's been proclaiming that Christians are in fellowship with God. That we're to walk in relationship and in communion with God. Second, that Christians are adopted children of God. Sons and daughters with the promise of the continual presence of a loving father. And then lastly, that Christians should show that they are Christians. Give practical proof by obeying God's commands and by loving one another. So this morning, we're gonna look at one verse, actually a half of a verse. And we're gonna focus on the role of Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, this person of the Trinity that applies all the things that I just mentioned to our lives makes what I just said that John has been proclaiming a reality, an experience for us. So I'm going to read a half a verse. So it will be a short stand and a quick sit. Uh, so because we give attention to God's word and stand together and it's reading, so I'm going to ask you to stand. And then I will pray and then you can sit. This is God's word for us. First John chapter 3, the last half of verse 24. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Uh, let's pray. Lord, I tremble to preach on the spirit, something that uh, a topic and a, a subject Uh, that I continue to learn and grow in myself. Uh, It is the person of the Trinity that uh, perhaps many of us are least familiar with. But God, Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, all persons, equally important to understand who you are and what you've accomplished for us. And so God, I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to our spirits this morning through your word. Remove me, the preacher, so that Christ and Christ alone is lifted up so that the spotlight is shown upon Jesus and we might leave here having encountered Christ by the Spirit through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. The night Max wore his wolf suit and made mischief of one kind and another. Some of you know this opening line from the children's book, Where the Wild Things Are. When I open up Where the Wild Things Are and I read this first line of the book, my oldest son, Henry, begins to dream. He begins to imagine, and he enters the main character, Max's enchanted world of the wild things. As we grow older... Most of us are taught, and most of us do, leave children's books behind to live in a more tangible, scientific, and observable world. I love what G.K. Chesterton, 20th century writer, poet, philosopher, and theologian said. He said, the only words that ever satisfied me as describing nature are the terms used in the fairy books, charm, spell, enchantment. He says, I left the fairy tales lying on the floor of the nursery and have not found any books so sensible since. It has taken me a long time to find out that the modern world is wrong and my nurse was right. The world is a wild and startling place. My prayer for us this morning is that we might leave here captivated by our enchanted and mysterious world. Mystery, Mystery is something that we have a hard time with as modern people who have been taught that there is a division between faith and science that we have to choose between the natural world and the supernatural world. Historian Hans Borsma says that up until the 15th century, people viewed the world as mystery. And by mystery, he means that people believed that the world contained realities beyond what could be seen, touched, measured, or even understood. Boersma says that the most urgent task facing the church is a recovering sense of mystery. Now, Here's why I start this way. If we have a hard time with mystery, we are going to have a hard time with understanding Holy Spirit. If we have a hard time with mystery and thus Holy Spirit, our Christianity becomes pragmatic. And we're going to long for a 10-minute TED Talk on Sunday mornings on how to be a better Christian. Five things that make for a better life. We'll do things in the church that work and chuck those things that appear to be not as impactful. Our prayer lives will be minimal, our celebration at this table shallow, and our openness to God's leading and God's work in and around us will be muted more and more I see the most urgent task facing my relationship with God. And the most urgent task facing the church is truly recovering a sense of mystery, thus a deeper and fuller understanding of Holy Spirit. Now, we need to understand what the Bible means by spirit, because there is a lot of confusion around Holy Spirit. Timothy and I were out in Chapel Hill a few weeks ago, and we got into this long conversation with a woman who said she was spiritual but not religious. Very common refrain today. Maybe some of you would say the same thing, and you just happen to be visiting, and we're glad you're here. But she said, I'm, I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. And for her, spirit was much more in kind of the terms of Eastern mysticism. Kind of this belief that we could be absorbed into God, that we've got the ability to become divine ourselves. It's a lot of language that we find today in yoga studios. But Christianity is neither Eastern mysticism's understanding of spirit nor the modern world's denial of the supernatural. Christianity is founded upon the belief in one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the Old Testament, the word translated spirit is the word ruach, meaning wind or breeze. Now, if a five-year-old comes up to you after this service and asks you, what's the wind? How would you answer them? Um, It's like when high pressure meets low pressure, it creates the wind. Not sure that's going to work for a five-year-old. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, the wind is best described indirectly. You can see and experience its effects, but its essential nature is mysterious so it is with holy spirit. We're going to look at three things about the holy spirit this morning. The first thing that I want us to see is the importance of holy spirit. The importance, there is an objective and subjective importance of holy spirit. By objective I mean we believe as Christians that what happened in Acts chapter 2 was a historical reality. A fact. That in Acts chapter 2, after Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father, Christians were gathered in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, and suddenly something mysterious and tremendous happened. The Holy Spirit descended upon them. And the whole place was shaken and people started talking in languages that they did not know and other people understood those languages and people's lives were transformed. And from that moment onward, the Christian church was constituted and began to function with the presence and power of Holy Spirit, functioning in a way that had never been before. And we today are a continuation of that which began thousands of years ago, the continual presence and power of Holy Spirit in and through us. And as Christians, we believe this is a fact. It's a mighty fact. It's a turning point in history, Acts chapter 2. In ways, the last great step in the plan of salvation. And we believe that as Christians that God created That God sent his son to become flesh. That God the son died on the cross. God the son rose from the grave. All historical facts that we hang our faith upon. And that that day in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, we believe is a fact. Holy Spirit poured out on the church, ushering in a new epic of the spirit filling and dwelling the church. This is important. Because as Christians, we're not saved by believing some theoretical truth. We're saved because of what God has done, actually done for us. This happened. So as we view salvation and we think about God's rescue plan for the world, we must never stop at the cross. Or if we go beyond the cross, we're going to never stop at the resurrection and the empty tomb. We must always see this last step of salvation, the sending and the pouring out of Holy Spirit upon the church. In 1944, Japanese Lieutenant Onoda was given charge to slow down allied progress during World War II. Maybe you've heard this story. In 1945, Americans took... Japan by force, many Japanese dying, but Lieutenant Onada and three others escaped and they began to engage in guerrilla warfare against the U.S. troops. In August 1945, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. Thousands of Japanese died. Soldiers scattered. It, many of these soldiers were unaware that the war was now over that Japan had lost, and so they continued to fight. Global political leaders met with Japanese political leaders because of this continued guerrilla warfare where soldiers were hiding and still killing what they believed to be their opposition in the war. Japanese leaders decided to drop leaflets in the jungle by using airplanes, leaflets that read, the war is over, go home. Many of these Japanese soldiers read it, realizing the war is over, and so they went home. Well, Lieutenant Onada found and read and concluded that it was fake news. It was a trap set by American foes. And so Onada and his three men continued to fight. Five years went by. Most Americans went home, but Onada was still in war mode, shooting farmers and murdering locals that he believed were against Japan. The people of Japan started pleading with him. The war is over. Japan lost. 1952, the Japanese government tried one last time to draw out all the soldiers who were still fighting. This time they dropped letters in the jungle. Letters from soldiers' families. A letter from the emperor himself saying, stop fighting. The war is over. But Onoda continued to fight. In 1959, locals decided enough was enough, and so they started fighting back. Two of Inada's men were uh, convinced that the war was over, so they left, and in 1969, his last companion was killed. But Inada continued to fight. In 1972, the Japanese and Philippine government tried to track him down, but they couldn't find him. And people wondered, was he still alive? And later that year, one man determined, tracked him down, and finally convinced him that the war was over. 30 years of fighting a war that was non-existent. 1974, he returned to Japan, disillusioned by what he saw. For 30 years, he was fighting for something. Now he didn't know what Japan was or what he was doing there. So in 1980, he moved to Brazil and lived there until he died. How sad is that? For 30 years, a man fighting a war that is over. You know what's even more sad? You fighting a war that's won. You fighting a war that's won. For Jesus on the cross cried out, It's finished. And he rose from the grave, triumphant over the world, the flesh, and the devil. He defeated our foes. These three enemies still fight against us. They still try to lead us astray. But the good news has been dropped. The war is over. The victory is won. Letters have been given to us. Testimonials from family and friends. Even a note from our king saying, trust me, the war is over and the Holy Spirit has been poured out, and the Holy Spirit unites us to the victory of Jesus, that we are in him, that what's true of Christ is true of us by faith. We're victorious. We're led in Jesus' triumphal procession, filled with Holy Spirit. Here's the truth. As Christians, our position has changed by faith because of what Jesus has done. And by the sending of the Spirit, we are more than conquerors. Yet guerrilla warfare is still real. We're still tempted to leave and not trust the victory that is ours. And so our posture as Christians, how we daily live into this truth of having the Spirit of God dwell within us and unite us to Christ must be vigilant. We must remind ourselves and press in to this truth that the victory is ours in Christ. Holy Spirit mediates the triumph of Jesus. Holy Spirit mediates our salvation and our redemption. In seminary, I was taught that God the Father is the author of salvation. God the Son is the accomplisher of salvation. And God the Spirit is the applier of salvation. Holy Spirit is the active agent of the Trinity, applying to us that which has been accomplished already in Christ. That the war is over. The victory is won. So what does that mean for us? It means that if anything substantive has happened to you spiritually, up and to this point in your life, it was the Holy Spirit that did it. Holy Spirit mediating salvation to you. In John chapter 14, John's gospel, I've always found this amazing that that Jesus says that it's more advantageous for his followers that Jesus leave them and send Holy Spirit. Do you believe that we have an advantage today over Jesus' disciples? That we're more equipped to follow and live out the Christian life than they were. So, Jesus says if the Holy Spirit is God experienced, God tangible, God manifested to us. See, a Christian is not just a good moral person, uh, someone who is doing good works or who's just a member of a church and attends Sunday morning worship occasionally. A Christian is one in whom the Spirit dwells and unites us to Jesus. It's been said, and I've often said it, that the the journey from uh, the head to the heart, this distance from the head to the heart is not 18 inches. It's the longest journey of our life. So how How do we take the truth that we know here and connect it to our daily experience? Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit. It's an important thing for us to understand. Second thing I want us to look at is the actions of Holy Spirit. Not just the importance, but the actions. A big question for us is how do we know which experiences in a life are of Holy Spirit and which are not? I think within Christianity and outside Christianity, there's a lot of confusion around this. Whenever the Spirit shows up in the Bible, Spirit always brings two things, life and power, life and power. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's safe to say that whenever God does anything big, Holy Spirit is the agent. Remind you, Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters when God created in the beginning. When Jesus came into the world, Holy Spirit conceived him. When Jesus was in the wilderness confronting Satan, he was led there by Holy Spirit and came out in the power of spirit. Jesus went to the cross, Hebrews 9:14, through the eternal spirit. And when Jesus was resurrected, Paul says in Romans 8:11, it was the spirit of him that raised him from the dead. And finally, Peter tells us that the men who wrote the scriptures were carried along by Holy Spirit. Think about that. Creation, the incarnation, the temptation of Christ, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the inspiration of the scriptures, and regeneration, all the Spirit's work. Holy Spirit brings actions of life and power. Life, the Spirit is creating and recreating How how do you know if something is alive or not? It's alive if it's breathing, right? And the Old Testament word wind is also translated breath, the breath of God. You know you have the spirit if the dead things in your life are being identified and healed. That recreation is happening in you. Life is happening second thing spirit brings power whenever you see people in the bible who are full of holy spirit they are capable of superhuman feats of courage and poise if you read about them the reason being is that holy spirit our advocate as the scriptures call him or our counselor or our representative unites us to jesus the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus and gives us peace, courage, boldness, patience, and love. Now think about Stephen in Acts chapter 9, if you've ever read it, the book of Acts. How could Stephen stand there in peace while being stoned for preaching the gospel? Because the power of Holy Spirit was filling him, was flooding his heart with the truth that he was in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you are safe and secure no matter what happens in this world. When the Holy Spirit acts on his people and in his world, Holy Spirit creates and recreates and brings that which is dead to life. And Holy Spirit shines the spotlight onto Jesus, reminding us that which is true, that we are in him and that gives us courage and boldness and peace and love and moves us out in power. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again, about J.I. Packer uh, driving through the English countryside late one evening. He was trying to find a church that he was speaking at, and it was cloudy and it was pitch black dark, and off in the distance he saw this church lit up. But what he couldn't see was the source of light. He only saw that which the light shone upon. Hear this, the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is the floodlight of the church. You only know it's there when you see what it's shining upon. Holy Spirit never says, come to me. It always says, go to Jesus. I love that Tim Keller calls the Spirit the great matchmaker Joining us to Christ and keeping us joined to Him. It's the action of the Holy Spirit. Lastly, let's look at proof proof of Holy Spirit. How do you know if Holy Spirit is within you and is working in you? I'm gonna give you four things, four proofs quickly. The first is there's a holy disturbance. You're disturbed, you're going along with your life, and something begins to interfere. Holy Spirit begins to disrupt and disturb and interrupt your normal, ordinary life. When Holy Spirit is working, you are aware of being dealt with. And God does that through people or through circumstances, through his word. But proof of Holy Spirit being at work in you is that there is a disturbance. Second thing is that there is a rising interest in truth. Our spiritual interest in truth increases. Paul says in Romans 8 that the non-Christian puts their mind on things of the flesh while the Christian has their minds on things of the Spirit. Our longing for truth increases when Holy Spirit is at work in us. And where do we find truth? In the Scriptures. So let me just say this right here, that that the Holy Spirit and the Bible always go together. Holy Spirit never disagrees with the Bible. In fact, Holy Spirit illumines the truth of the Bible. Our experience with the Spirit of God is not some type of hyper-realized magic. The Spirit authored the Bible to let us know what really is and what really isn't Him working. If the Bible doesn't attach the Spirit's work to something, we ought to tremble to to ascribe that to him falsely. Proof of Spirit at work in us is when we're interested in learning the truth and applying the truth to our life. Here's the third proof. There's a conviction of sin. When Holy Spirit is at work in our life, there's a conviction of sin. Those who are filled with the Spirit grow in their sense of unworthiness and even guilt before God. There's a longing for the old self to die and for this new self of being in Christ to grow. A mark of Holy Spirit is not always loud emotion. Oftentimes it's quiet and somber contrition. Joe Novenson is a pastor that I deeply admire. He's in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and he preached at our General Assembly this past summer, which is the denomination's gathering. And the reason I love Joe Novenson is not because his intellect, though he's brilliant. It's not because he's charismatic, because if you've been around him, he's not very charismatic. It, it, it's actually his humility that, that makes him charismatic. It makes him attractive. His sense of walking and, and living day by day of this feeling of unworthiness and this man who revels in God's love to him. And, and before he preached that night at General Assembly, I ate dinner with two guys that work with, with Joe uh, week in and week out. Uh, and we were eating dinner and they were like, Joe's terrified. Here he is, 65-year-old man who's been in a denomination for 40 years. Joe's terrified. He's terrified to preach. Before the whole denomination. And so we get there right in time for Joe to preach, and I, I just keep my eyes on him the whole time. He's being announced and introduced by the moderator, and he's weeping. They're, they're talking about this man who's been amazing, you know, a huge impact in our denomination, and he's weeping because I know, because I was just told, because he feels unworthy. He doesn't feel like he can stand up before everybody and preach. He feels broken. And then I saw a man that night filled with a spirit, humble, contrite, clinging to God's grace. And he preached with the power of Holy Spirit in a way that few have experienced. Holy Spirit working. If you go through your week and through your day and you never feel convicted of sin, Never feel your unworthiness or your guilt. I can bluntly say you're not living in the power and the life of Holy Spirit. Here's the last proof. It's the fruit of Spirit. It's the fruit of Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Galatians that the fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. These things will be evident and growing in our lives. We will know it and others will know it. The way John has summed it up in 1 John for us is that we will grow in our desire for holiness and in our love for brothers and sisters. That's how John's, our love for God and love for others will grow. It's amazing that God lives within us. The eternal God living in us. I wonder what might happen to me, to you, and to Christ Central Church, if we stopped living like Lieutenant Anata and rejoiced in the victory that is won in Christ, we lived into that reality every day. That if we realized the creative, life-giving, powerful force that lives within us and unites us to Jesus, how bold, how loving, how peace-filled would we all be and what a witness to our city that would be. And Christians, if we live enchanted lives, stop being so modern, and we walk daily through this life believing that the supernatural is just as real as the natural, that we live in one world called God's world, and we're part of his story and his story of salvation coming to us and to us, through us, to the world. How might our lives look? How might our church look if we live this way? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would wake us up to this shy member of the Trinity, the one who wants no attention, the one who always points away and to Jesus, points us to the one who's accomplished everything on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would do that even now as we come to your table. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.